This is an ABC podcast. What is it about Irish storytelling? That combination of poetry and pain, brutality and a wicked laugh or ten. Lyrical and tough. All those contradictory words flash up against each other. Hi, I'm Kate Evans, and this is a summer extra edition of RN's The Bookshelf. And today, the writer is Audrey McGee and her book, The Colony. Audrey McGee, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. Pleasure to be with you. This book begins with three men and a boat crossing the sea to a small island. But perhaps we should start, what what is this island? What is this place you're taking us to? So it's an unnamed island. It's three miles long. There are 92 people living on it. It's an Irish-speaking island. It's off the west coast of Ireland. It's, if you like, it's it's a metaphor for the island of Ireland itself. Um, and I was very careful not to name it because, you know, everybody's saying, oh, it's this island, it's that island. Well, no, it's not. It's all of us. It's all islands. And I, the reason I do this, the reason I take everybody to this island is because I want to explore colonization. One of the men in the boat is an English artist and he comes to the island to paint, to paint the cliffs and to paint the landscape. He's, he's, he's from London and he wants isolation and he wants to escape the, the London art scene. And he thinks he has the island to himself. He thinks he has the islanders to himself. But then he's quickly followed by a Frenchman, Jean-Pierre Masson, who is a linguist and he's studying the Irish language and he's studying the demise of the Irish language on this island over the four generations of people who live on the island. Basically, it's the two men landing on this tiny island, both certain that they are, you know, the right people to handle the island, the right people to handle the islanders. And it's it's through them that we explore what it is to be a colonizer, what it is to be colonized. But even before we get to the island, that journey across the the sea or across the strait from the mainland to the island, there's something so extraordinary about that journey because we're in a little boat. And I wonder if you can tell us about that boat and what it means to each of the three men in it. Okay, so it's a curragh. So it's a a small handmade boat. It's It's a traditional Irish boat that was regularly used to, you know, to get from one island to the others, from the mainland to the islands. Each region of islands had their own style of boat, depending on what type of sea they had. So the Englishman has been in London reading of the traditional islanders and has decided that he wants to cross in a traditional boat. But the islanders don't use them anymore. You know, they've moved on. It's, it's 1979. They do use motorised boats, but he won't hear of it. He wants to have the authentic experience. He wants to be one of the islanders. He wants to strip back and become an islander, if you like. Now, he's determined to do this, but he's not a boatman. He's not a seaman. He lives in London. So the two Irishmen who are rowing about the island just think this is ridiculous you know this man is out of his depth they say look why don't you take the the motorized boat you know you'd be safer it's easier and he's adamant that he is doing this traditional way and it already within this tiny boat there's a conflict as to which is going to be right the englishman that yes i can do this i know what i'm doing or the two local men who's saying you're out of your depth here but they take him anyway because he's paying 
he has the control that money gives him to say, no, we're going in this boat. So already within this boat, there is the conflict between or among these three men. There's also humour as well, because we see this Englishman Lloyd and his ridiculous in his pomposity and his certainty and the responses from the, um, you know, the island men, they're very dry, they're very funny, and it's sort of puncturing what the Englishman's doing. Not that he sees it, but we as readers are brought into that sort of complicated dynamic. Yeah, because, because humour is a weapon, humour is a tool to take, a, take back a little bit of the control being exerted by the Englishman in this tiny boat so that the two men are hilarious because what else can you be? You can only hu- use humour between each other to say, well, I get this. He's, he's out of his depth. He doesn't know what he's doing. So there's this huge play with the word grand. That tiny word just can mean so much. And the boatman, Michal, uses it over and over. You'll be grand, Mr. Lloyd. You'll be all right. But, but is he going to be grand? And the two men, the two Irishmen, totally play on language to if you like, re-exert control, but reclaim a little bit of the space that this man owns by virtue of being the one ordering the boat, by virtue of ignoring their advice. So yeah, humour is, humor is a total weapon, it's a tool. Well, and language plays such an interesting role in your novel. So Lloyd, the Englishman, arrives, he's looking for the light, he's wanting the colour on the cliffs, you know, he's going to be staying in this little house but he is also going to be looked after by a group of women. Tell us about these women. So these women are, are the backbone of the island. It's, it's a family of women, a grandmother, a mother, her daughter, and the daughter's son. They have lost all their men in a boating tragedy. So these four generations trying to eke out a living are on basically a granite rock in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So these men, first of all, when, when Lloyd comes, he's very important to them because he is a source of income that will get them through the winter. They have no choice, if you like, but to tolerate these kind of antagonisms between the men. So the women, on the face of it, are just in the background, but actually they're keeping the day-to-day life going that enables the men, if you like, to have play their politics, to have their little power struggles, because in the end, it's the women who are sorting the food, the women who are sourcing every single meal that these men will eat. So they're absolutely essential to how the island lives and how the island functions. But they're also the people who carry the language and the history, and they're the ones that try and keep that alive. And it is through them that Masson, the Frenchman, studies the language because they are the only ones who are really properly, truly speaking it and, and holding this flame. So if you like, they, they serve there as the historical and traditional link with Ireland as it was. To some degree, they are that because they are impoverished and they have no choice and they have no options. But they are also that in a way because they choose to be. So it's a complicated, they play a very complicated role in this narrative of the island. Well, and such a complicated role in terms of who and where they're looking and what they're looking at or noticing or longing for, I guess. And so Mairead, the young woman who has a son, Seamus or or James, she keeps looking at the sea and looking 
for her lost husband? I mean, she's both looking sort of inwards and outwards. Okay, I'm, I'm glad. Um, yeah, Mairead is, Mairead is the young, beautiful widow on the island. Um, she has a son, James, and she's young and most of the people her age have left, um, but she is bound to this island because it's where she was with her husband. It's where her child was created, where her child was born. And she looks to the sea because the sea is both, for her, it's a, it's a binding force because that's where she lost her husband. It's where her future lies in that he was her future, but he is now under the sea. So she looks at, her, at the sea as her future buried but also, like all islanders, you're always looking at the sea, either whether it's in this case towards the mainland of Ireland or you turn in the other direction and you're looking towards America. All the other women her age have left to either go to America or, or Australia or London or wherever. And they're living these much more elegant and interesting lives. And, and she's left here bound to the sea because the sea is where her husband is. And her son, James, he becomes, in a way, the sort of fragile heart of the book because he's in and of the island, but maybe thinking about not belonging there. How would you describe James? I love James. I, I think about James a lot. Uh, yeah, how do I describe James? James is, to some degree, you know, he's the embodiment of, of my generation in a way because so many of us had opportunities and, and chances to do things and, and others didn't. And there's an awful lot of people, particularly young males, who struggle to find their place in the world and they don't want what's expected of them. You know, they don't want to inherit. So he's supposed to be the fisherman and provide for his mother and his, his grandmother and his great-grandmother. And he's supposed to provide this life for them, but he doesn't want it. But yet he's a good guy. He's a decent young man. So he feels bound to do this. So, yeah, his, his dilemma is a really interesting one because how do you walk away from impoverished women? How do you leave them behind? And staying can be as hard as leaving. and We don't always understand that. Well, and he sort of vibrates with curiosity and interest in the world. But we're talking about these characters and their dilemmas and this strange tension between these two men on the island. But that's not the only thing that's happening in the book. So we're going in and out of these lives and there's a real poetic cadence to the way that you've written it. But interspersed, there's these terrible counterpoints, these half-page stories that take us off the island where do they take us and what are those stories doing? So these stories are real life events. They are narratives told in the present tense of events going on in Northern Ireland and around Ireland. They're basically events arising from the violence in Northern Ireland. So they're reports, if you like, or interruptions of accounts of violence against Protestants, against Catholics. Um, acts carried out by the IRA, the INLA, the loyalist gangs. And it's just basically, it's the summer of 1979 and life is going on in the island. But these events on the mainland or in Northern Ireland cut into their daily lives. And, you know, that is from my childhood. I was 13 when the Mountbatten boat was blown up in Sligo. 
and Lord Mountbatten was killed and two young boys were killed on, on the same day a, a woman died subsequently. But the two young boys were 14 and 15 and, and I was 13 and they had been out on the boat with Lord Mountbatten, one of them working on the boat, one of them, a grandson of Mountbatten. And it was an incredible moment for me because these boys my age were killed in the name of Ireland. And I was 13. I was like, well, they, well, I didn't ask them to be killed. I'm Irish. It was a searing moment for me in terms of what is my identity? What does that mean to be Irish? What does that mean? What is the impact of those moments of violence that we grew up with? We weren't, we weren't up the North. So I don't equate our experience at all with what happened in the North, but we were down South. And there's a generation of us who literally just grew up with this drumbeat, this pulse of violence into our lives that was either being done in our name or against our name. And I, I look at that in the novel because that has had a huge impact on us in a way that we don't actually really fully understand. So I want to explore that as, if you like, the, the ordinary Irish child who grew up with this backdrop. It's a slow pulse through the novel but it builds and builds and builds until the islanders can no longer ignore it, until it is part two of their lives. Well, and it's there in the sort of the shock of the stark language of that violence and fear and upheaval. And it sits in a really interesting relationship to the use of the Irish language and where that language and identity sits. So I wonder if you could talk about the way that you've structured this novel and the way that you're using different styles of writing and language to counterpoint each other. So, you know, language is at the centre of this work because when you look at colonisation, when you look at colonialism, one of the things that comes under attack first, it doesn't matter where it is, whether it's French colonial colonised countries, whether it's Spanish, whether it's British, one of the first things that comes under attack, Russian, is language. Realise that Ireland was a template for the modern colonialism that went into India, into Africa, across South America. Um, but what, what happened when Henry VIII and subsequently Elizabeth I came into Ireland, they imposed a structure where English became the dominant language, but it wasn't done kind of naturally it was ha as was happening in previous movements of or kind of conquests of Ireland, you know, whether it was Viking or Anglo-Norman, where things might happen gradually with language. This was a very violent attempt to absolutely rid the country of the Irish language so that you had to do everything through English. And your way of getting a job was through English. Your way of succeeding was through English. Your way of educating your children became through English because you could do nothing through Irish. It became a very debased um, language and it became a language of the poor, of the illiterate, of the peasant. It's a clever system if you want control, but it's a devastating system if you just happen to love language. And I think inevitably, if you are a language person, you come back to this question of, well, what happened to my Irish? Why, why didn't I do Irish? Why did I let it go? Why did I become one of this, even though I am a linguist, and um, why did I become one of these people who just let it go, let it slide? Why was it too hard to hang on to? Language is at the core of it because it is about the languages that we use, but also how we use them. Well, 
Audrey McGee is the writer's name, her book is The Colony, and in it she takes us into a small island and a tiny community where two strangers have upset the balance of things. One of these men, the Englishman, Lloyd, is an artist, and the teenager, James, is fascinated by that. But James has his own way of viewing the light and the sea and the landscape. He resists any conventional framing. So there's a lot in this book about art and beauty and ways of seeing the world. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. I think they create a beautiful dialogue builds, to my mind, between them because Lloyd is coming at it from the perspective of the Renaissance where you have a singular perspective and everything's about focusing the eye on a particular thing. In his case, it's the woman and all the focus is on the woman. But James views it all very differently because he he sees everything as kind of being interconnected and interrelated. So he gives he likes to give every, everybody in that kind of more naive art parity. There isn't a perspective. There isn't one person or one thing dominating the landscape or, or his pictures because everybody matters and everything matters. That gets beaten out of them. him. He's, he's told that that is wrong because it's not the right way of seeing things. Well, what is the right way of seeing things? And why should there be a right way of seeing? And James really struggles against this because he is trying to create things as he has seen them on the island where everything is interconnected. So the fish, the, the boats, the people, they all matter. The puffins, the, the seals, everything matters because everything lives together. Whereas the colonizer's view is a much more hierarchical structure and there is one first thing to look at and then everything else around it is secondary or peripheral to this singular person at the top of the heap, if you like. So just thinking about the way in which you've written this novel, are there other novels that you see as influences in terms of style or what it is that you're wanting to explore? I think it's a really interesting question. I, I think for what I wanted to explore was whether national identity impacts on your internal monologue. So basically, we carry all these latent ways of seeing the world, depending on how we grew up, depending on where we grew up, depending on whether we grew up as the colonized or whether we grew up as the colonizer. And what is the impact of that on your internal language? So each of the characters, each of the four characters who have internal monologues have, have their own way of seeing the world, but expressing that. And, and Lloyd, who is the, the English artist, has, arrives on the island with this fractured sense of self because he is, he is landing as an Englishman on an Irish-speaking island off the west coast of Ireland. So, you know, fair to use to him, quite a brave thing to do. He's not necessarily sure of himself, or sure of his footing. So his language is staccato it's it's more poetic it's it's just not quite cohesive in the way Masson the Frenchman arrives and he's Proustian in his language he's he he just oh man I have this I know these islanders they know me we're the best buddies ever so he's totally sure of himself so his language his interior monologue reflects that it's all cohesive and then Mairead and James they're cohesive and they have it together but because they they're really not very sure of themselves, of their relationship with the language. They, they, they fracture too. So, yeah, the language is who influenced? Emily Dickinson, hugely influenced. Proust, hugely influenced. Joyce, um, Dujardin, 
Oh, Lordy, it's it's a, such a very, very, very long list. I, I don't know if it's like anybody else's as more an amalgam of years of reading, really. Reading, and, and one of the huge influences on me was Marguerite Duras, who the French writer, who I met first as a, a 16-year-old. And I just adored the space she created around her characters and the space for the reader. So I think if anybody influenced me, it would be, she She probably had the most profound influence, the singular most profound. If I was to go to one writer, it's her. So what else would you put on your top shelf? So I have carried with me since my school days, um, Peg. Maybe some, there are some Irish people in Australia who will know Peg. So Peg is the a story that we did at school. And it's the story of an old Irish woman who tells her story of life on the Blasket Islands. I was in school, you know, whatever, 16, 17. I loved this book. Everything was hard and it was island life and it was just such a hard place to be. But I just thought this was such a visceral book. But because it was in Irish and because it was peg, I was dead meat if I said I liked this book. So I became what I describe as something of a closet peg reader. You know, you couldn't ever say you liked peg. It was a difficult relationship back then with the Irish language. It's changed a lot now. Was was it shame? What what was was the resistance? It's such such a big question, Kate. It's it's a huge question. And, and, And it's been really interesting having Irish readers now read this book because my friends in the North will talk a lot about the violence, but my friends in the South talk all about the language and their relationship with the language because it was so politicized I did this study recently for the Times Literary Supplement on Joyce and the Irish language Joyce tinkered with the Irish language as a student you know because there was a kind of revivalist thing going on and Maud Gone and Yeats and everybody was talking about Irish and everything else but he couldn't bear the politics around Irish um, so he and Stephen Hero fled, saying, you know, English is the language of the continent. I'm out of here. And interestingly, that man at heart was was a linguist. You know, he he would wander across Europe picking up languages, drop the hat. He could learn German. He learned Italian. He learned Triestine Italian. He he also um, went off and learned Norwegian so he could read Ibsen in its original. But inevitably, he came back to Irish. As, as a linguist, inevitably you come back to, to Irish because you rejected it, you left it, you couldn't bear the politics around it. In our case, it was the language associated with political violence. It's very hard to find a space for language when it's being used as a political tool. But that is changing and it's really interesting to see now there's an kind of a a movement now towards bilingual works in literature, but also in film. Irish-English films are coming out now and Irish-English books are coming out, which is really, 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 really interesting to see. And it's just happening in the last kind of two or three years. And I suppose we've had almost 24 years since the Good Friday Agreement. So we've had 24 years of really non-violence, which allows the language question to resurface, if you like. Um, So in the book, I use language, and then there is a huge debate between Lloyd and Masson about whether or not anybody should be using Irish at all. It's a dead language. What's the point? And Masson, who's a huge proponent of the language, arguing, well, no, it's the soul, it's the essence of the people, it's their history is embedded in the language, their landscape is embedded in the language. And, and I did this because I wanted to give parity 
to the language. Now, obviously, I'm not an Irish speaker, but I do understand the preciousness of this language that we are at risk of losing because now there are more people speaking Irish on the east coast of Ireland numerically than there are on the west coast of Ireland. In asking you that, I derailed you from your story of Pig, the book that connected you personally to the Irish language. I suppose because she was so elemental in the way she lived on the island. You know, she was so, if you like, such a historical link to the way we used to live. Now, you can call that romanticism. You can call that many, many, many things. You can call it a waste of time. You can call it old-fashioned. You can call it ancient. You can call it but lack of modernity. Many, many, many things. But it was something that we had in Ireland in, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, there were just these pockets of resistance, if you like, that some of us engaged with and some of us didn't. And, you know, there were parents who spoke Irish who did not want their children speaking Irish. And there were other parents who did try and, and allow their generation interest in Irish. But it's not that it just wasn't cool. I, I think the legacy created by Henry VIII actually still lingered. It was the language of the peasants, the illiterate, the poor, the impoverished. So in a way, maybe Henry VIII prevailed even in me. And that's I've never really thought about it, I suppose, in, in that historical framework, but it went on right through the generations. So, you know, it is still happening. You know, fundamentally, it's a sad thing, isn't it? But what I like is the fact that in this novel, you don't translate everything. That as readers, we have to work out our relationship to the words that we don't know and just deal with it. And there's something very defiant as well as moving about that. And I love the way that you are trusting us as readers to make that work. Well, and, and I think, again, I would draw, sometimes I kind of would have to take a deep breath about that because I knew what I was doing. So sometimes I would take a deep breath to say, am I, am I actually able to do this? Because that is a big ask of other audiences outside of Ireland. And, and I think this is where it's really interesting, is that if you give people the space in language, they will figure it out. But if you don't, and you politicize it, and you create kind of interpretations of how it should be, then people won't figure it out. But there's so much you pick up from each other through gestures and through eye movements and just through physical movements that help you understand what's going on. So I, when, I, when I did create situations where I'm not translating it, I, I made sure that you could try understand it if you wanted to. So it is up to you, but a lot of people will feel threatened by the fact that I'm not translating it. And, and that's back to this interactive thing where I say, well, that's on you, dude. Why do you need it translated? What is it that you're saying here that you don't trust me to some degree? But actually, even more so, you don't trust yourself to read what's around these words. You ask a lot of things of us in this and you leave us with this deliberate <laughs> unease. You. I'm sorry about that, though. <laughs> well, no, don't be sorry about that because I love being unsettled by a novel and I have not been able to stop thinking about this novel of yours. So, Audrey McGee, congratulations on The Colony and thank you so much for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. 
It's been a lot of pleasure. Thank you, Kate. Such a pleasure to listen to the writer Audrey McGee talking about her book, The Colony. I'm Kate Evans, and you've been listening to a summer special edition of The Bookshelf. But there are so many more books out there, so join me again next time for more books. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.